So I'm going to talk about uh, a new hermeneutics of suspicion and the challenge of deep fakes. So um, let's just start by assessing the threat of deep fakes. So uh, this isn't in the paper, but this is very much in the background of my thoughts about this. Uh, Sheila Morrissey heard me talk about this at length, so I won't go into great detail. But uh, I am, among other things, in charge of the Television News Archive at Vanderbilt University. So the Television News Archive has been archiving broadcast television news since August 5th, 1968. Uh, it has, at this point, uh, 50 years of recordings, which add up to slightly less than a petabyte of data, um, 750 terabytes. Uh, and so it's a massive, massive collection. And so I work with four and, well, I'd say 4.5 FTE uh, right now to organize and make this collection accessible. The thing is, what I worry about in this context is we're keeping a part of cultural memory. And what happens if someone introduces a virus, don't get any ideas if you're watching this, <laughs> uh, that, that you know, starts distorting the cultural record? Uh, and so, you know, or if they, you know, we loan someone one of our clips uh, and they do a deep fake change, but they leave our timestamp on it, indicating that it came from our archives, and it seems to be authentic. This is, I think this is a very present problem. It's already happening in some sense, and we're really worried about the potential for cultural memory. So uh, deep fakes, we probably have all seen various forms of deep fakes, but just to, you know, um, talk about it. This is, this is software I'll come back to in a minute uh, called Deepface Lab. Uh, the, the main thing with deepfakes and that I've talked about in the paper is that this technology has existed for a long time in various forms. People did like, you know, work with Photoshop to alter images. Uh, movie studios are able to do this routinely and we've seen those movies. But now this has become a democratized technology in the sense that any one of us in this room with, you know, a few hours of training could start producing our own deep fakes. Uh, if you had the inclination to do that, and you know, this is software off the shelf, more or less like you would use other software. Uh, so, you know, uh, we worry about propaganda. For example, uh, if you watch this, this is uh, what you might call puppeteering, which is that one person is uh, on that one side, uh, you know, vocalizing and saying things, but on the other side, it's Putin who's actually vocalizing and saying those things in Putin's own facial expressions in his own voice. Uh, and so, you know, propaganda is a, a major concern. The other place that this has surfaced, and it's, you know, unfortunate, but it's just true that it's, it's making synthetic pornography. This is, this is the huge area in which deepfakes are proliferating. So, uh, one of the questions I have is, you know, uh, well, can we return to some, you know, I would say tried and true theological ideas like the hermeneutics of suspicion and think about how that might interact with our experience of these deepfakes online. So some of the work that, for example, Paul Ricoeur did and others to think about uh, the hermeneutics of faith and a hermeneutics of suspicion and how they might work together to, you know, bring us to a second naivete about, you know, media, I don't know. but. When we think about the hermeneutics of suspicion, one way that Paul Ricoeur talked about this was a kind of tearing off of the mask. So I think like a Florian, your work of the porous mask and Kate's work on, you know, like digital personhood. So what happens when we tear off these masks? What lies beneath? Because it, it implies that there is something beneath. If you tear off a mask, you're not hopefully tearing someone's face off, you're tearing a mask off. <laughs> and so that's different, right? And so one of the things we have to think about is, are these masks and what, what is behind them? What is the sort of spiritual interior, if we want to call it that? So I gave you three scenarios to think about because I also think it, in, in terms of theology, there, there's a tradition in theological circles 
to be somewhat negative about the potentials of new technologies. And I think we're all aware of that. And uh, I think it's kind of incumbent on us to not fall into a kind of conservative theological mold, which is to say, like, you know, well, we're, we're, we're going to resist these new technologies because they may be disruptive in some sense or another. We, we really need to think about, I think, how they, you know, from a Christian perspective, uh, serve the mission of the church and, and how they can have positive influence as well as negative influence. That's particularly in a place like deepfakes where it's, it's terrifying. Like everybody I talk to about deepfakes, the initial reaction is, it's terrifying. Like, you know, so, like, I, I, I admit that, it's terrifying. <laughs> But I think as theologians, we want to think beyond the terror to also think about the potential for good. So these are three of my, I would say, like not necessarily super inspired, but like at least thinking through what potential uses you could have. So Liarbird, I would encourage you all to go on like Michael was doing and to experiment with this, because you can go on right now to Liarbird, and you'll hear someone talking who's just you know um, been recorded. And then you can go and change the text and have that person say a new thing, which sounds exactly like the old thing, and then connects to both sides of what he had been saying uh, in a way that's totally to the natural ear indistinguishable. Uh, so, you know, uh, obviously, like, for misleading people, this is, this is a problem. Liarbird is very careful to say that they, they will only allow you to actually alter your own voice at this point. So if you, if you want to, like, use this technology, you won't be able to use it for anyone but your own voice because they figure you'll be responsible with your own voice, maybe, maybe not with others. But I, so one of the scenarios I thought about is, you know, if you're, if you're preaching and, you know, if you, you make a mistake or you leave someone out, uh, you could use Liarbird to put them back in before your, your um, audio goes up on the web, which, which would save a lot of pastors from various gaps. Um, you know, a little bit more, like, uh, I guess, uh, futuristic, but again, the technology is here. There are a lot of congregations that have linguistically divided congregations so that you know, there might be like a, a Spanish service or you know, um, uh, alongside an English-speaking service, and there may be different pastors running those services. And you want to think about like this being a single congregation together in some sense. So why not have you know, pastors from either of those sort of you know, um, individual groups in the congregation uh, preach sermons to each other? I mean, I'd, I'd always love to hear like what's being said in the, in the Spanish congregation, but I can't. I can't understand Spanish well enough to understand the sermon, but what if the sermon was delivered to me in a way that basically showed that pastor preaching with all the facial expressions and you know not dubbed, just in a really natural way, uh, but using technologies to uh, basically map uh, someone else's uh, translation into his voice, so he's now speaking in English to me or she's speaking in English to me. Uh, it's, I think, an interesting potential use, and I don't know how it would work in virtual congregations, but I think it would work even better there than it would in in-person congregations. Uh, and then I also think about the, the, the role of museum informatics. Uh, this one you may have seen, I think I've got this video that will run. This is um, the Mona Lisa talking and, and chatting about things. Uh, and um, so this was done, the, the, the technology has gotten to the point, you used to have to have a lot of video to be able to like emulate someone. But now you can actually take a single shot uh, and then uh, do a fairly realistic, uh, you know, moving image interpretation. Uh, and so, you know, what I had in mind is like, what if you go to a museum, you have some AR goggles, and uh, then Martin Luther starts explaining the Reformation to you. I mean, I think kids would really like, you know, love to see that, you know, to go to each painting and have the painting come alive and tell you its story. I mean, I think that would really be engaging. I mean, now from an art historical perspective, it's a little problematic to like, <laughs> but you could always take the goggles off and then it's still and you can appreciate it again. I, I think this is a technology that we'll see museums pick up. I, I really think this will happen. Okay, um, 
Okay, so the technology, was I on that slide? Did you see that slide? Yeah, okay, I, I did somehow it like skipped what I was going for. Okay, uh, so here's a quick behind the scenes, you know, how does this technology work? I'm gonna ask Michael to like fill in all the details. Uh, so, um, but as he was talking about, this is about artificial neural networks. And so the idea here is that you basically got a set of data that you wanna map onto another set of data. And uh, you go through lots and lots of sort of approximations from the beginning to the end until you reach where you hope to be. Uh, the, the neural network idea is that um, you're propagating some of those small changes that get you to the end result, both from the data side forward, but also from the side that's the labeled side that's the outcome backwards. And so there's forward and backwards propagation through these neurons to make what's a big neural net. The other thing that's kind of behind this that's a really interesting new technology um, that has come out of, um, I guess, since 2014, and I think the person's name, and I've got it written down here, um, is Ian, no, I can't read my own handwriting. Um, well, it, it, it doesn't matter. This is uh, Ian Goodwin, I think is his name, but I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, the idea is that we can really improve results quickly if we actually take two of these uh, sort of neural nets and we kind of play them off of each other. So the idea is that you have a generator and its job is to come up with you know, potential successful um, mappings from the data to what you're looking to, to, to emulate. Uh, and then you have another that's the discriminator that basically its job is to decide whether that was a good mapping or not. So can it tell the difference between the, the version that came from the generator and the tests, the real samples that were coming in of, um, you know, like real moving images of the person that you're trying to uh, uh, do a deep fake of. So the way this works, though, is that every time both sides does one of these tests, they both learn. So it's not just the generator is learning to get better and better with each test, but the discriminator is learning from its experience of judging, and it's getting better and better, to the point where then at some point they get so good uh, that it's Im impossible for them to make any better progress and you've got your result. So this idea of generative adversarial nets, of having these two play sort of against each other, has what's really made this possible to uh, generate these deep fakes much more quickly than uh, had been possible in the past. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, you could go onto GitHub and uh, you could, I think for around $35, you know, uh, get the computing power that you need to do this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's their instructions all written out and you just have to follow them and it's pretty clear, like it's, it's not technology that's beyond any of our capabilities. Okay, so uh, let's see about the philosophy side. I'm just checking my time here. Oh, and I forgot to stop my, start my clock. So uh, how am I doing on time? Ten minutes left. Okay, perfect. Okay, so uh, so this is this is a real presentation. Has anyone heard of DragonCon? Okay. <laughs> so I, I would encourage you all to try to get to DragonCon because it's it's like the craziest um, sort of cosplay sort of fandom event. Uh, it takes place in Atlanta every year. It's like a Comic Con, but like with every different type of gaming that you could imagine uh, beyond just comics. And this is a presenter, Teddy Fish, who's dressed up as the flying spaghetti monster, um, talking about deep fakes. Uh, and this is really how the panel was. So like, this is why you go to DragonCon, because you don't see panels like that <laughs> anywhere else. Uh, but you know, her main advice, and this is the skeptics track, they, this, this is the track that I, you know, is um, sort of atheist slash skeptics track. Uh, 
the, the advice was, you know, we have to learn how to be better discriminators of information. We have to be able to be wiser about the way that we consume information and be more skeptical. And so I, I do think that's good advice. You know, as a librarian, we teach people information strategies. You know, I understand that. But I have to say, like, most people don't use them, including me. So the, the problem is, um, you know, it's a classic Cartesian problem. You just can't question everything. And so as these technologies proliferate, part of the problem is that our own evolutionary capabilities in terms of, like, taking in the world around us are not evolved to meet this kind of threat. Uh, we actually work with like a lot of sort of heuristics that help us gain knowledge because they're much more efficient than trying to actually spend time discerning whether something is true or not in every single circumstance. I think one of you asked me the question, maybe it was Michael, like, you know, do we actually do this? Do we actually like stop and try to determine the veracity of something before we act? And the answer is no. In most cases, we act on, you know, the impulses that we get, assuming that they're reliable, although they're really well-documented psychological acceptance where they're not reliable. There's, for example, like the fluency heuristic, and we probably all have experienced this. If you, something comes to mind really quickly, uh, you tend to, to assume that that's probably true compared to something you have to think hard about. It's just, you, you know, assume that truths come to mind more easily. And that's why advertisers put on commercials over and over and over again. You may say, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. It's propaganda. But you recall it really easily, and that convinces you, actually, that it might be true. So I mean, all this is well known. And so in the deep fakes re region, it's, if you see these deep fakes a lot, it's still hard to kind of sort out in your unconscious your, you know, with these systems that they're actually false. So that sort of set of adaptive processes, I, didn't, I never knew about this urban legend, but does anyone know about this, that there is a legend that you would swallow eight spiders a year in your seven. sleep? Seven. Seven. Is it seven? <laughs> <laughs> the, fake, the fake story is that it's seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK, so I mean, I don't think I swallow any spiders in my sleep. And so, <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, it, it's essentially like a, a kind of urban legend. And, but yet, there's a large number of people that, that believe this. Uh, and so part of that is just they, they see the urban legend, you know, when you scroll through Twitter and you read things and they're just kind of so fast that you kind of forget about them right afterwards, these things stick in your mind and then you forget, oh, I actually read that as an urban legend. I didn't read that that was true. So this is the problem with deep fakes. Like you just put them into the environment, they will start changing people's perception of reality, whether or not people are good at discerning a deep fake in a particular instance. So uh, I want to talk now about empathy. Because I, I think that there's some way in which empathy may be our solution here, I hope. Um, this is, I, I've said to several of you, this seems conservative. Uh, I like Edmund Husserl. I like his Cartesian meditations and his philosophy of intersubjectivity. This is chapter five of the Cartesian meditations. But the reason is he talks about this idea of apperception. Uh, basically, the idea is that when you and I are interacting, I interact with you as a, as a conscious human being but I also interact with you in terms of your facial uh, appearance, your, your bodily appearance. And that those things are, in our interactions, not separable. That's what the apperception means. We get them at the same time, but they can be distinguished. And so in a certain sense, the, the surface appearance is the mask. Uh, uh, but the mask for us becomes fused with the persons in a way that you know, reveals the person behind it. But I think what we're realizing in all these different contexts that we're talking about is that switching masks online, but we're still dealing with the same person behind it, uh, suddenly gives new life to this idea that there is this kind of apperceptive moment in, in the phenomenology of intersubjectivity. We can talk a lot about that. But it is very similar to the way that Turing set up his Turing test. The Turing test is very much based on the idea of an interface between you and the person. 
or in the case of computer, there's a wall between you and you're sending messages so that you can't see whether you're interacting with a computer or with a person. And your job is to determine which is which. And uh, as Sheila was telling me, also like, you know, one version, uh, the gender of one or the other. So like, you know, there's interesting questions about what that interface does in terms of our perceptions of the person or the machine or the spiritual entity behind the interface. And I just want to sort of wrap up with this, you know, I, I think that science fiction authors have been thinking about this too. Uh, there's a, a really great story by Ted Chang called uh, Liking What You See, in which he introduces this term calignosia, which is uh, the ability, uh, inability to perceive beauty. And so people take a particular drug that makes them able to see people's faces, but not able to tell whether they're beautiful or not. They can't discriminate between beautiful or ugly. And how that changes their relationship with people. And so some people, I mean, his whole story is some people like this drug and some people take it regularly and some people think it's, it's awful. And, um, and what kind of privilege our external ex experiences you know, uh, provide in terms of the way that we relate to others. And, and I think what the questions we want to have is, you know, the, what, is the, what do those privileges look like in other contexts too? Are, can they be, be considered porous mass in the way that I think, again, I like your term so much. Um, and so I finally end with this idea of, could we think about a new form of iconoclasm? And I think there have been really good questions about this. I have to confess this part of my paper is just a thought that I threw out because I'm still thinking this through, which is why it's great that we're having these conversations. I do think, though, that there's a long tradition of veiling in order to see. And it's paradoxical, obviously, um, but this is, you know, this is a Greek statue of, of a veiled oracle. And the oracle veils herself so that she can see. Uh, she's seeing in another dimension than the physical dimension. And so what I want to ask is, uh, is there a sense in which uh, the proliferation of deep fakes will mean that we need to practice this type of not necessarily destructive iconoclasm, but of a kind of selective veiling so that we reduce the vectors of attack, but also that what we engage with, we can engage with with greater empathy. OK, I'll stop there.